Yours, mine, and ours. I can do this for hours. Sit and talk to you for hours. I want to give you your flowers. I don't really know the words. When you do, I'm empowered. You can be my superpower. Could be ours. Instantly, it's under showers. I can do this fast. And Tanola Oliver with the making of the Mogul Radio Show, where the dream is free, but the hustle, the hustle is so separately. And so somebody said they wanted to hear my voice. And I love that song. I was listening to someone's live the other day and they played that song and I started singing it. I was like, well, somebody asked me about two weeks ago to sing something. I was like, I don't know. I don't. Like, like I have to, singing for me is, um, like, singing for me really is, is purposeful, right? Like, it has to be, for me to sing, it has to be a reason um, for me to sing, right? And so I haven't really had um, one of those moments. Like, I have, have moments where all I do is sing, singing is liberating for me. So I sing when I feel bound by something, right? Or if I feel um, um, a, 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 a strong something in the in the in the in the environment that is constrictive, right? Of my talent or my ability or somebody that I care about. Like if I'm um, doing warfare for somebody that I care about and I feel that they are restricted. Um, singing for me is, is like, it's, it's liberating. It's a, it's a, it's a tool of warfare for me. And so for me to just, just sing out of the blue for no reason, it's just, it's not something that I do. Cause I, I can, I see myself as a comedian, right? 
And so um, anyhow, somebody asked me to sing and I listened to that song the other day on somebody's live. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I can um, figure out what one of the one of the verses is on this particular song and I'll sing it. So anyhow, that was that. Um, I want to talk about uh, outliers, uh, a lived research case study on Curtis 50 Cent Jackson. The reason why I want to talk about it um, is because I made a post the other day about, what was it about? Um, The post was about just um, trying to walk in purpose, right? And so oftentimes people ask me various things about um, prayer, purposeful prayer, the types of prayer, um, when to pray, things of that nature. So the Bible says pray um, without ceasing, right? So if if anybody ever out there is thinking like, well, when do I pray? When when don't I pray? You you pray always. That's what the Bible say to pray always. Um, and um, but primarily. Um, my reason for wanting to talk today was because I've shared a lot of different things about the journey of writing this particular literary work. I've talked about the, I think the excitement and the fun parts of writing the literary work. What I've omitted is the fear, right? And so somebody posted something the other day and I said, you know what, I need to do uh, an episode and to talk about the fear that I experienced in writing this literary work. And particularly, what was the fear surfaced around? So I had a fear of trying to write something about somebody that I So the first time I've ever tried to write anything about anybody was my mom, right? And I told you, I started this journey a long time ago. So my first, very first subject matter person that I wanted to present before the world as a case study and um, a story of success, right, was my mother. Um, During one of my PhD programs that did not work out for me. At that particular time, it was not. So we're we're living in an era now where it's, um, you know, black power, right? And um, we're back, like everything's full circle. So we're back at a black power moment, particularly uplifting um, black women. When I was working on my PhD, that was like a, was not something really that was celebrated um, or something that you could talk about openly, right? Without people viewing you as a racist. And and I'm, I'm just really just being honest, right? Like uh, when I originally presented wanting to do a case study um, with my mother being the focal point, it um, it just was not a good idea in the environment that I was in. They seen it as uh, me being racist, right? That um, why would I not want to focus on women in general instead of just narrowing it down and making it about a black woman? And so, but we've moved beyond that. That wasn't that long ago either. I just want to say that. Um, But we've moved beyond that. And so now uh, we have had the opportunity to experience um, a shift in business culture and things of that nature as it relates to what we celebrate in the terms of leadership, right? And we have some of the points that I've brought to the table have been about the importance of diversity and what diversity looks like for 
creating sustainable business models for organizations and brands, right? Uh, Because oftentimes, and I've had this experience myself, right? Um, I talked about on one of my shows, I think when I was interviewing Miguel Wilson from uh, Miguel Wilson Fashion out of Detroit, D.C., and I think it's third store is in Miami, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. And so when I talked to him, I, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I mentioned that I had posted a piece of my artwork on one of my social media platforms. And then I looked up and Coach had um, offered their very, 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 very similar rendition of that particular piece of art. And it was on clothing. And this was around the time that I was negotiating um, with the clothier to print my art on on clothing, right? So none of that was by coincidence. And um, it was just, um, it was discouraging for me as an artist. It was discouraging for me as an entrepreneur, right? I could not blame Coach as an organization because I knew that at the top level, at the executive level, that no one would have allowed that to happen at an executive level because they don't want to deal with the lawsuits. They actually, and they really don't want to deal with the stigma of being an organization that would steal art from a single African-American Black woman, right? People at the thinking level don't make those type of decisions, right? People at the level of needing to brand and sustain organizations, they don't make those type of errors, right? Nonetheless, it happened. But I knew immediately what had happened because it's been happening for years, right? They borrow um, from the culture. They borrow our ideas, our style, Um, They receive them as their own and they take credit for it. And so we've been having these conversations about the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And unfortunately, I'm in a situation today that I have to have a difficult conversation. And I hope that people are mature enough to to hear my heart, right? I am a woman who loves all race of people beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I have a very low tolerance for racist behavior and racist rhetoric, right? And that's whether it is within the same culture or without um, the culture, on the outside of the culture. Any form of it um, is, is a detriment to society. And for me, as a person who has been an advocate for humanity, right? Um, It's whenever I encounter environments that are riddled with racist rhetoric and behavior, um, it's always disheartening for me to say the least. But just stay with me, and I'm moving this uh, forward, right? This is going to segue into outliers, right? Which is not about race, right? However, when that art was stolen, I knew that it was from the level of creativity, right? How did I know it was from a level of creativity? Because diversity is very much needed and a very and, and a necessary proponent in pushing culture forward in organizations, particularly at the creativity level, is very necessary. And so I knew that it was an artist, right? Or someone who was in charge of uh, creating art for the brand 
who had stolen the idea and thought that it they would get away with printing it right on clothing. And so when we talk about the celebration of hip hop and we talk about um, what does appropriation look like, I just want to talk from the heart of people who grew up loving and enjoying hip hop before it was a popular um a popular force that was able to destroy barriers right within communities and within this nation and allow people to lower their uh, barriers, their cultural barriers, their ideas of who they felt they had the ability to connect with. Hip hop um, transcended cultures and race and ethnicities and religious barriers and all of that eventually. But when hip hop first started, And when hip-hop first entered the scene of entertainment, it was rejected and it was resented uh, outside of the culture because it is a form of art. And we were saying things that was not popular to mainstream America things like F the police from NWA and um it was it was very gangster it was very harsh and it was um it it was a reality that America had not braced herself to experience right because it was art that was being told from the lens and the perspective of the ghetto right Um, of urban America, the things that uh, America had not told a story for from the perspective of the African-American, right? Um, Living within the paradigm, right? And so up until that point, our stories were being told by people outside of the culture, which is why we talk today as creative artists, whether that is in theater and music or television, that a single narrative is dangerous. And I have been advocating and advocating and advocating for the past five years that there has to be some type of I, I think it's dangerous when we try to tell real stories. Um, without allowing people to tell their own stories. And so that is my segue into talking about outliers. The fear in writing outliers was one, I was creating a narrative for somebody that I didn't know. And I didn't know how it would be perceived by the public, right? And so... In the midst of me doing my research and and wanting to tell this story because I felt like it was an underrepresentation of our intelligence, our talents, and our abilities, right? Um, from from an undeniable talent and gift that was operating in the earth, but yet somehow um, the talent was suppressed. And when I say the I'm, I'm when I say the talent was suppressed, and while I understand that uh, Fifty Cent received awards, when he made that segue from music into television and the big screen, we it was comfortable for us as enthusiasts of entertainment to try and hold his brand to gangster rap right and to hold his brand and so the reason why we wanted to contain him with gangster rap was because then we could still point to his past right and the things that he had um the things that had unfolded in his past 
on a personal level. That's why we didn't want to bring his brand out of the construct of gangster rap music, right? And so it was fearful for me, number one, um, in asking myself, how do I create a narrative that snatches the personification of this individual out of what is very much a part of who they are and bring them forward into a construct and a paradigm that places him at tables and environments and in rooms with executives that don't look like him, function like him, um, have, have had experiences like him or have even come from where he comes from. Like, how do I tell that story so that moving forward, when we have conversations about the same type of personification, that we can separate people's past from who they are today once progress has been made? The fear of doing that begin to surface when I realized one that he was a um when I uncovered he was a billionaire it I it made me nervous right um because that's that part that that part of the story had never been told right um the amount of wealth that he had developed throughout the years that had never that wasn't really a conversation that we were having. And it's not really a public conversation that anybody would have, right? And so all of that, but it was necessary for me to tell the story and to tell that part of it in order to place him and people like him in rooms that would allow them to transcend from the hood into the boardroom but not just a boardroom that was constricted of their brand only, but a boardroom that existed of parallel organizations that didn't necessarily come from where they, where people like this personification had, had risen up from, right? When people say started from the bottom, now we here, right? To be in rooms with individuals that didn't start from the bottom, and to create such a narrative that they wouldn't care that this type of personification started from the bottom or how they started from the bottom, right? That was the narrative that I, and I had to find a way to shift that narrative and, 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 and gently walk this character through a paradigm of booby traps, really? right? Because I was associated with the church community. And so one of those booby traps would be um, religiosity, right? Like people who felt like he shouldn't be where he was because his past, right? Like, um, like people can't, like people can't maintain what they've maintained. Like there are plenty of people outside of the, the African-American race and culture that didn't start their money at um, in healthy ways, but for some reason, um, it's always uh, when people make that segue from the street into mainstream. It's always this uh, perspective that that they had to give away, right? Or 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 we had to dissect, right? Um, how they got there and, and how they started and all of that, which is complete, utter um, BS. Because there's not, Black people are not the only people that, that, that um, when we talk about generational wealth, if we look at the, the, um, the, the trace of money, right? And everybody's trace of money starts at a point that is unhealthy, right? Um, it, it is 
just again, and we're talking about generational wealth and first time, uh, first time individuals that the first person that creates the generational wealth for the family, right? Is typically some unseasoned, un, um, something that is something we can't sit around a dinner table and talk about. And that's not just black families, right? And so I had the danger of navigating um, him through that that personification, navigating him through that that booby trap, because I had to associate and tell his story from a spiritual perspective. When I say spiritual, I'm talking about from a faith-based perspective, because most of the outliers that I have studied and done research on had a base of faith, of Christianity. And um, him in particular, he he talked a lot about going to church when he was growing up. And um, in his grandmother's heavy involvement in the church. And so I could not tell the story without telling that because then it made it easy for people to better understand why it seemed like he just had this lucky streak, right? Like when we take faith out of it, it just becomes a lucky streak, right? Like the luck of the draw. But it's obvious with all of his experiences and things that he's endured and overcome that it's not luck, right? There's something um more at work right and and in the book i talk about the one moment and so i hope you enjoy this episode of the making of the mogul radio show with myself your host tanola oliver and so here is the thing um that we're talking about in this episode. I So singing for me is warfare, right? And someone recently asked me to sing. I chose to sing before I did this particular episode because I needed to work through some spiritual things. This is what I, I hope that when you listen to this episode that you hear my heart from a perspective of a leader who has a heart for all of humanity. This is a difficult conversation to have as an African-American woman who still exists in various business um, processes in the world in in different capacities. Some of those capacities are... um, predominantly African-American environments, and some of those environments are predominantly Caucasian environments. It's a different, difficult conversation to have as an African-American woman because the intersectionality of me as an African-American woman is that I've had to advocate for myself And I've had to advocate for my son. And so what happens with African-American talent is that depending upon the environment, in order to suppress the talent, they have to diminish the value of the individual or create a narrative around the individual that pulls away from their talent or distracts from their talent. And for me as a mother, and for me as an African-American woman, is something that I feel I've watched happen throughout the years that should no longer exist in 2023. And it's disheartening for me to know that we still have African-Americans in leadership positions 
that have the power to shift those paradigms and operate in their power as the diversity within the room to not allow those negative narratives to surface when the knowing that the intentionality is to suppress the talent and to take away from the talent and in have and so I've I've been in some very important rooms where I was the smallest person in the room and people wanted to know how I felt and and what I think needed to take place it's actually something that absolutely has to be dealt with at the educational level. And if we can't have people that look like us in power positions to play for us, they don't need to be in those positions. And if we have predominantly African-American institutions that don't take the perspective of no talent left behind, then that leadership within that force needs to shift. And I say that as a mother who has had children in predominantly African-American environments and a mother who has had children in an environment that was predominantly Caucasian. And it was disheartening for me as a mother to have to deal with the same situation in two different environments. And it is my anticipation that my voice as an advocate says that we cannot allow this to happen anymore. That we have to take African-American people out of power positions if they refuse to do what the purpose of them being there is for, which is to not allow the talent or the character of the student to be suppressed or to be demoralized or whatever words we want to use because they're the minority in the room and because someone outside of the culture wants to be a part of the culture and they don't know how to do that. And so they act out of ignorance, right? And so what happens when people outside of the culture want to be a part of the culture and instead of asking for permission, then what they do is they act out of ignorance because they're not used to not being in the power position. And, and so the conversations I had was that we don't allow those students to move forward in leadership, right? We, we stop the student because at the high school level, while the mind is not mature enough to make decisions until they're 25, at the high school level, you're mature enough to understand and know what your behavior is, right? So we don't need any more racist doctors, right? We don't need any more racist media professionals, right? We, we have enough of that. Um, we don't need any more... Um, individuals in leadership positions in this world that operate from a perspective that if I don't um, know how to ask for permission, that I'm going to make a mockery, right? Or I'm going to um, overshadow, right, what is right with my ignorance so that I can be a part of something that I don't know how to ask for permission to be a part of. And what I am most grateful for is that 
as a woman who has walked the journey as a faith believer is that the Lord takes offense when people try to manipulate the plan of God. When you try to shift environments and you try to change people's brands and you try to suppress people's talents and steer people in one direction versus another because you're intimidated by what you see on them. The Lord takes the offense, right? And while the Lord does what he does, we as people have to stop allowing toxic individuals to move into leadership because there is darkness operating in leadership where there should be light. Like everybody has somebody in their city or in their municipality that's been occupying a space for a long time politically that should have been stopped in their young years, right? The behavior and the characteristics were there in their younger years for being racist and showing racist rhetoric behavior, um, acting one way towards Caucasian women and another way towards Black women, um, wanting to suppress the talents of young African-American males, Versus, so all of we see all of that behavior before it even has the opportunity to surface, right? And we have to stop it before it makes it into leadership positions. And that is from someone who loves humanity. If you went through my telephone right now, there is no race of person that you will not find in my telephone that I use on a regular basis because I come from a perspective that we live in a multi-generational and a multi-ethnic world. And I collaborate with everyone. Right, I don't think there's anybody too young to provide their input because that youth is a is a part of diversity, and I don't um, like multi generational is necessary. Like in the in in any environment that wants to continue to thrive, right? In the same token. Um, there is no race of individual that I feel like should ever be left out from, from the, the discussion at any table because diversity is needed, right? What I don't, and so as a behavioral scientist, like there's a lot of different conversations that I could have. What I don't think people realize is that there is a shift happening. They're about to do a major prison reform, right? And the reason why they're working on this prison reform behind closed doors is because the demographic that is increasing is changing. And it is because of the influence of of social media right? That demographic is changing because people have been seeing some things that they didn't even think or knew existed. And so those conversations cannot be had. Those paradigms and those constructs cannot be shifted if they don't bring African-American women to the table and that have had previous incarceration records and ask them how they made it into those situations. Mm-hmm. 
I am willing to make a bet that three out of 10 of those women were functioning, tax-paying, self-educated women who continuously found themselves in environments that pushed against their humanity as a woman and as an African-American woman. And they finally reacted in a way that landed them in prison. We live in 2023 and that should no longer be an issue. But now that the demographic is changing about who is the growing population now, right, of incarceration, you're about to start hearing more of those conversations and people are gonna wanna hear they're they're going to want to hear that narrative, right? Because it's, social media has shifted the paradigm around what's tolerable and what's what's no longer tolerable, right? And those are some of the conversations that are taking place behind closed doors that people are not really talking about because we're distracted with other things, right? But it should have been a conversation that should have been had a long time ago. An African-American woman should be able to sit down at a table at work without being harassed or approached or disrespected by men, by gay women, by anybody. and do what she's been hired to do, period. And so I am, um, I'm disheartened because it's a story that nobody tells. It's a story that nobody talks about, right? An African-American male ought to be able to sit in any classroom and not be harassed by a gay male or an overzealous um, bullied white male um, or a Caucasian female who wasn't taught to respect African-American males. Like these are, when we talk about diversity, these are the conversations that we're still not having and it's 2023. And it's two different constructs, right? It's either, it's predominantly African-American environments, right? It's a different construct there. And then it's predominantly white environments. There is a construct there. And there has to be a way to bring balance to it all. And I am disheartened because of the leadership that we have pushed in this era have been the distraction and not the response. And so this is just the introduction to the show. It's about three or four clips. It's a conversation that, like I said, I had to sing to work some things out um, spiritually because this is a difficult conversation to have. Um, And while people pretend like they don't know who I am and they don't know that I have a show out there, they listen, they follow uh, my social media and I have to deal with it in some sort of way. But here is the thing. Um, I, I, I was dealing with it before I had any type of, um, I've always been in the public. And so I was dealing with it <coughs> anyway. Um, I think things have just shifted as it relates to my ability to tell a story and 
my inability to no longer be silent about the story that I experienced. And um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm talking about outliers and I'm talking about my fear of why I almost did not publish outliers and and those those ideologies um, or, or, or constructs around wanting to tell a narrative and a story about um, a celebrity as large as 50 Cent and um, wanting to dodge the stigmas of what those look like as an African-American woman in addition to wanting to keep the story healthy for him and staying away from his personal life because the overarching goal of what I wanted to do was to separate who he is today from the mistakes he potentially made yesterday and um, only highlight the things that he'd done well as a businessman because they were underrepresented in in the narrative, in the business world, and they were definitely underrepresented when you heard people talk about who Curtis 50 Cent Jackson is. Um, lastly, what am I going to say? I would not, so while I am working on dual citizenship for another country, uh, because it's just something I wanted to do, the United States of America is still, from my perspective, like, right, because I I don't have any other experience to bring to the table right now. Right. Maybe once I um, once I get to Ghana, maybe my story will be different. But as it relates right now as an academic and an intellectual. The United States does a very good job at protecting its intellectual property. In the form of human capital. So when you see people like Barack Obama or people like Cornel West um, and, and people talk about Dr. Umar <laughs> all the time uh, because his, his viewpoints are so strong, right? But nonetheless, major thinkers and people who stir and trigger innovation in the in in this nation are very well protected. Do you think the government knows who Dr. Umar is? Absolutely. Do you think the government knew who um, former President Obama was before he became president? Absolutely. Um, Do you think that they were watching Cornel West before he became the Dr. Cornel West? Absolutely. The United States does an amazing job at protecting its intellectual property. People like, and, 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 and I could name other people like Susie um, Orman or, um, Um, I'm trying to think of some of the major um, innovators that um, um, the Tesla gentleman. Why can't I not think of his name? I don't know why I can't think of his name. Um, Bill Gates. The United States does an amazing job at protecting its intellectual property. 
you don't bump up against certain personalities and certain talents without people in the right spaces at the top of the food chain knowing about it. It is so important to treat people with honor and respect because if you encounter the right person and disrespect them, it can change the entire trajectory of your life because the United States does an amazing job at protecting its intellectual property and protecting the next generation of innovators, right? And it is just so important to treat people respectful because we are entering into a time period where there is less and less tolerance for people who don't have the intellectual prowess to be who they are and to still have a reverence for who someone else is. At the leadership level, and I'm telling you this from the conversations and the rooms that I'm in, from business to entertainment, the tolerance for the ignorance that operates in between is growing less and less and less because the United States is very intentional about creating this next generation of innovators by all means necessary. Peace.